we uh, think about this morning, we're uh, encourage you to turn to the book of Galatians, Galatians 5. I remember uh, the purpose of our church is to glorify God. And we do that as we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, and as we prepare God's people to worship him forever. And we, I believe, are doing a great job in many areas of our church. I think that our discipleship ministries are strong. We're doing well, uh, preparing one another to worship God forever. Of course, there's always ways that we can grow. But I, I do believe that uh, by God's grace, over the next 10 years, God will help us grow in our ability to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, not just to one another, but in our world and in our community. And a question I think that's important to ask ourselves is uh, how, how frequently am I sharing the gospel? Have I shared the good news of Jesus Christ with someone in the last week? Have I shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone in the last month? And if we can say, uh, if we can't all as a church say yes, you know, that there's, there's areas for improvement, right? And so uh, our goal would be that we would be a church that is proclaiming Jesus Christ uh, as Lord, as often as we have the opportunity to do so in the, the places that God has placed us. And hopefully God will grow us in that. And this morning, the passage we're looking at helps us think about the, the gospel and the importance of getting the gospel right and the danger of getting the gospel wrong, even just a little bit wrong. And last week, you remember, we were in this kind of this difficult passage and we saw that to, to knowingly embrace a works-based gospel, to knowingly embrace a works-based gospel, that is a gospel that is not faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, but it adds our works to it. To, to knowingly do that is to deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. We saw that in the first six verses of Galatians 5. And now we're going to turn to verses 7 through 12 as we, Lord willing, finish up this, this passage. And we're going to talk about how, how we respond to that. So what do we do whenever people are knowingly embracing a works-based gospel? How do we respond to that as a, as a church in a way that protects the gospel message? So we're here in Galatians 5, and if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, I'm going to read the whole passage, but again, we're looking at verses 7 through 12 specifically this morning. Paul begins this last section of Galatians with these words, for freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Then we come to verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. You may be seated. May God encourage and strengthen us in his word. May he be glorified in it. And Father, we do thank you for what you have instructed us here. We thank you for the gospel message, and we pray that you would help us uh, as your people to boldly proclaim the gospel, to lovingly proclaim the gospel, and to hold fast to your gospel message. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, we are in a tough passage again this morning, and as we kind of begin this, this tough passage or continue looking at this passage, I want us to think about a, a biblical understanding of what love is. Uh, Jonathan Lehman, in his book, The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love, he, he gives this definition of love. He says, love is an affection for another's good. It's an affection for another's good. I want good things to happen to you if I love you. Something, he writes, something in you attracts me to want your good. And God is the good that God lovingly wants for others. 
and he's the good we should lovingly want for others. In other words, if if I love you, I want you to know God. I want God to be glorified in your life. I want you to experience the joy of being in a relationship with him if I love you. He writes, we love our parents, friends, spouses, and enemies best when we desire for them to know the glory of God. God's love is God-centered. Ours should be as well. If I love you, I want your good. And your good is to be known and loved by God, to be in right relationship with him, and to live in such a way that he's glorified. And so I, I want that for you if I truly love you. You might add to that the idea of sacrifice. And so if I, biblically, if I love you, I'm going to, to sacrifice of myself for your eternal good. That's love. Now, if that's our understanding of love, what that means, if that's the right definition of love, what that means is that my desire for your good is greater than my desire for you to think good things about me, right? So if, if, if I truly love you, then that means my desire for your good outweighs my desire for you to think good things about me. And so if, if those two things come into conflict, your good and you thinking good things about me, my, my goal ultimately is, is to sacrifice your good thoughts about me for your good. I, I want good things for you more than I want you to think good things about me. You're in the middle of a road and, and a car is coming and you're wearing your, your eye buds and you don't, you don't hear the car coming and you're turned away. I, I, I yell, I, I, I plead with you, here's a car coming. I, I, I run, I, I tackle you to, to remove you from the, the path of the car. You're welcome. And um, I only think of your good. And, and I'm, I'm more concerned about your safety than you being think, you're thinking, oh, Daniel's kind of mean to me. What's, what's his problem, right? I'm willing to, to sacrifice your good opinion for a moment for your, your good, what's ultimately best for you. Those of us who are parents have felt the, the, the pain of, of our children's displeasure with us at times, at moments, because we want what is good for them. And their good is of greater importance to us than their good opinion, than thinking nice things about us. And sometimes, of course, in the context of church relationships, for the good of one another, we're willing to say hard things to one another because we love one another enough to say those hard things. We're willing to talk about sin. We're willing to encourage one another to walk in godliness, and we want to be in relationships where others will talk to us about areas in which they see that we are not living in a way in which our good is being maximized, God's glory is being maximized in our life. We want to have a church culture where we can talk about that with others, and others can talk with us about how God and his glory can be maximized in, in our life. And sometimes... Sometimes that conversation, we, we see this biblically in Scripture, sometimes that conversation means saying things like, we, we don't believe that your life and your testimony is, is in, in step with the gospel. Sometimes we, we see this in Scripture. Sometimes loving another person means having to say publicly, look, we, we do not believe that this person's teaching or lifestyle is, is in accordance with the gospel to, to such a degree, we can no longer affirm their gospel testimony. Sometimes we have to remove people from church membership because it's for their good and because we love them. Now, now that's, a, that's a very controversial thing to say. In fact, I, I read a study this last week that said 75% of churches surveyed in this, in this survey, 75% had not practiced church discipline in, in recent memory. That's what we call it whenever a person's removed from, from membership or a person is no longer affirmed by the, the church as having a, a testament that's consistent with the gospel. We call it church discipline. 75% of churches did not practice church discipline in, in recent memories. In fact, I was talking with a pastor several years ago, and I, I, was, I was talking with him about a person that had been in our church, and uh, we loved them. We were trying to do this church discipline, or you might even call it a church restoration process with them. We said, look... Um, 
this person we've, we've had to remove from membership and now they're coming to your church and, and we love them and our desire would be for their restoration. So can we, can we help work with you? And, and I know they're coming to your church. I saw you, you call them a church member. Can, can we, can we work with you on the, on this and how we can, can love them? And he told me, look, uh, Daniel, um, we, we don't have a church membership process and we don't really have an official church. So because we don't have a church membership process, we don't have a church discipline process. There's really no way for us to deal with this. And, and he was right that there was no way for them to biblically deal with, with what was being described here in Scripture. Now, this, this all brings us to the issue of false teachers, that the people that Paul is talking about here in Galatians 5, his, his opponents, those who are spreading a message that's contrary to the gospel. And, and if there's no way to identify someone as not a part of your church or to re, remove those who are denying the gospel with their lives, you can't biblically deal with false teaching and false teachers. And now I know some of you may be saying this, you may be saying, well, you know, um, I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of church restoration or church discipline. Maybe you've been in a church where a person was removed from membership and they were removed from membership in such a way that there was no possibility of restoration. So you said, okay, you've, this person has, has failed in some way. We're no longer allowing you to be a member and there's no, there's no process for you to come back into to full restoration of relationship. And you said, well, that doesn't seem biblical. And you're right. That's not a, a biblical description of what Paul, what Jesus would describe in terms of church restoration. In passages like 1 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 6 that we'll get to, Matthew 18. Maybe even in a church where there was some, some conflict and the church leadership to deal with the conflict, they said, boom, you know, you guys are all in church discipline. So instead of dealing with things and, and biblically trying to restore relationships, they just said, okay, fine, you guys are out of here. Maybe you're in a situation where a pastor was trying to make a power grab and he just put people on church discipline to deal with it. That is not what we're describing this morning as well. Here's kind of the main idea I want us to think through in this passage. Love, okay, here's the central idea. Love compels us to address false teaching and teachers. Very simple idea, right? Love, a desire for other people's good, compels us to address false teaching and false teachers. Love, love for God because we love his glory. Love for his, his church because we love one another. Love for the lost, for those who are strained. Love compels us to address false teaching and false teachers. And here's, here's a couple goals that I have, a few goals that I have for our time this morning. One, I hope that we'd all recognize the reality of false teaching. You know, Peter tells his readers in Second Peter chapter 2, he says, There are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And so that we would recognize this morning, hey, this, this idea of false teaching isn't something that only happened in the first century or, you know, like in the, the, the uh, Middle Ages or something. The, the idea of false teaching is a, a clear and real and current danger to the church. Another goal that I would have for us this morning is that we would all agree that false teaching is bad. Okay, very modest goals, right? That we would all say, you know what, as a church we agree, false teaching is a bad thing. It's a, it's a danger and we are against it. And that we would, another goal would be that we would commit to loving God, the church, and unbelievers, and straying believers enough to deal with false teaching. And that we would be united in our approach. You know, it's not a good thing if just a couple of us in the church are willing to uh, deal with false teaching, but all of us would be united in our approach to how we deal with false teaching. We want to love, and love compels us to agree with God's teaching on the gospel and to deal with false teaching and teachers. Okay, so uh, let's do two things. We're first of all going to talk about the harm that false teaching causes to the church, and then we're going to see how we respond. So let's begin with the first thing here. Let, let's talk about what harm is caused by the church by false teaching. False teaching causes harm to the church. What type of harm? Three things. Number one, false teaching hinders obedience, okay? False teaching in a church hinders obedience. Paul says in verse 7, look at the text with me if you would. Paul says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? 
Now, the picture that Paul is painting here, you know, Paul often in his writing talks about, kind of uses athletic imagery. We see him use it to, with, with Timothy and the Corinthians to the Philippians. Paul kind of likes this imagery of running and athletic events. And so he's saying, you were running well. You were like an athlete who was running a race unencumbered, unhindered, and you were just running very well. So in other words, you were, you were being obedient to the Lord. And so the idea is that a person here that Paul is, is talking to was a person who had believed the gospel. They had recognized that they were sinners. They recognized that Jesus Christ had paid the penalty for their sin. They they'd placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And they were, they were running in, in that truth, in the gospel. They were believers and they were pursuing obedience to God, but they weren't pursuing obedience to God with the idea that, okay, if I pursue God's grace, if I pursue obedience, I'll get God's grace, I'll earn God's grace. There are people who said, I I don't deserve God's grace, I receive God's grace, my confidence is in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation, and I'm continuing to, to run in obedience to God, not to earn God's favor, but through God's grace being lived out in my life. That's, that's running well as a Christian. You enter by faith, you continue by faith. A person who's a believer is, is committed to pursuing obedience for the glory of God by faith. And Paul says, that's what you were doing. You're running well. And then he says, who, who hindered you from obeying the truth? And that, that word hindered can mean to, to cut in on. And so it's like a, an athlete is running and suddenly, suddenly there, there's something that, 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 that cuts them off. Remember there's that... Uh, the, the Kentucky Derby a few weeks ago, the, the horse who, run, who won the race was disqualified because he, he cut in on some other horses or was alleged, I don't understand. I, I saw the video, I'm like, I don't know what's happening there. But he, it's a big deal, right? It never happened before. Uh, Whitney and I, when we ran, uh, we ran the Chicago Marathon together for our 10th wedding anniversary, super romantic, highly recommend. <laughs> and... And, uh, you know, we, we kind of trained. We trained here in central Illinois, you know, country roads or whatever, farm roads. And then you get to Chicago and you run with 40,000 of your closest friends. And you're, you're running the, the streets of Chicago and suddenly like a, a guy in a, a chicken costume cuts in front of you. And so you, it's just this, this crowded mayhem for, for 26.2. In fact, I think we ran closer to 30 miles just kind of running in and out of, of people. Paul says, okay, you were running well. You were, you were running the Christian life. And, and here's, here, here's you running, you're running by, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you're trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation and you're trusting Jesus Christ for the, the grace to continue to obey and you're, you're being obedient to God, but you're not being obedient to God to earn God's grace. You're being obedient by God's grace. And then you're hindered. He says you were running while you were hindered. And what does that mean? It means there were these false teachers who were coming in and, uh, and hindering them from pursuing obedience. Now, what does that look like in our context? In a church where there's false teaching, you can have people who are genuinely saved, who hear the gospel message and begin to run well, and then they hear false teaching. And maybe it's false teaching like in Paul's day, or in this specific situation. Maybe it's, it's a works-based false teaching. Hey, if you really want to be obedient to God, if you really want to live the Christian life, yeah, you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ, but here's some, also, here's some other things that a good Christian does. And if you want God's favor, you need to do these things. This is how long your shorts need to be. This is the type of music you can listen to, and this is the type of music you can't listen to. And this is what it looks like in terms of how often you have to read your Bible, and this is how long you have to pray, and this is what time you need to be at church, and here are all these things you need to do. And now maybe some of those things are great things to do, but the false teaching, the works-based false teaching comes in and says, look, if you want to be a recipient of God's grace, do these things. Or maybe, Paul's going to talk about this later, we're going to get this in, later in chapter 5. Maybe it's a, an anti-law message. Hey, you know what? You're saved by faith. You don't even need to worry about your works. You know, if you want to pursue this immorality, if you want to cuss, if you want to talk, who cares? You know, you're under grace, you're under law. Do what you want to do. What does that do? That also hinders obedience. In a church where there's false teaching, false teaching about the gospel, about how a person comes in a relationship with God and enjoys a relationship with God. In a church where there's false teaching, obedience is going to be hindered. In a church where there's false teaching, you're going to encounter legalism. 
You're going to encounter rules about how a person relates to God. In a church with false teaching, you're going to encounter discouragement as people are, are recognizing, I can't do the things that I'm, I'm being told I have to do. There's going to be de- defeat as they realize, I can't live the, this Christian life. There's going to be hypocrisy in a church where there's false teaching because you, you know what the rules are and you know that you can't obey the rules and so you need to, to pretend like you're obeying the rules so that other people don't think wrongly of you. There's going to be hypocrisy, a, a lack of willingness to really deal with true sin issues in a church where there's false teaching. There's going to be immorality in a church or an individual who has accepted false teaching. False teaching causes harm to the church. The first thing we see here in verse 7, false teaching hinders obedience. What else do we see? Number two, we see that false teaching confuses believers. Look at what he writes in verse 8. False teaching confuses believers. Paul says, this persuasion, this, this teaching is not from him who calls you. This teaching that you're beginning to accept that these false teachers are, are teaching you doesn't, doesn't come from God. Now, a, a couple things to notice here. Remember, how did Paul spend the first two chapters of Galatians? What was he talking about? Do you remember? He was talking about the source of the true gospel. And he says, this teaching, this, this false teaching, doesn't come from God. It's, it's not from him who calls you. So where does it come from? Well, scripturally, we see that, that false teaching often is, is ultimately demonic. First Timothy 4.1, Paul warns of some who will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. It's not new that people would be trying to proclaim a false gospel. Jude tells his writers, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So, so don't miss the significance of this point. People in the church are going to hear false gospel messages, messages that are contrary to the true gospel message of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. People are going to hear these false gospel messages and what's going to happen? They're going to get confused. It's going to be confusing. The true gospel message says, look, you come into relationship with God through faith alone in his son, Jesus Christ. The false gospel message confuses the clarity of that message. It's reading a book called The Unsaved Christian. The Unsaved Christian by uh, Dean, I'm going to say his last name wrong, Dean and Sarah, I think. And he was talking about how he graduated seminary, and he and his friend were both getting ready to, to go into the pastorate. And his friend was going to California, and, and he was, Dean was going to go to the Bible Belt. And Dean was talking to his, his friend, and he said, man, you are going to have, have a tough time in the California, because we all know that no one in California is a Christian. Well, that one, that one big church. But besides them, no. He, uh, Dean's words, not mine, for all our California friends. And uh, his, friends, his friend said this. He goes, well, you know, actually you're going to have it hard in the Bible Belt because he said in California, in California there, either you're a Christian or you're not. But in the Bible Belt, many people think that they're Christians but have no concept of the severity of sin, necessity of repentance, message of grace, or the overall message of the gospel. You hear that? In places where, the, the, where there are large number of churches, but churches not proclaiming the true gospel with clarity, maybe a, a moral gospel or a, a kind of a social gospel or just this idea of let's all be in community together without the clarity of, hey, you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Without that message, the, the gospel gets diluted. It gets confused. And this is uh, Dean's friend talking to him still. He says, they think that they're just fine with God and, and God is fine with them because they're not atheists. They've been to church before. And then listen to what his friend said to him. It's almost like you have to help them get lost so they can actually be saved. Why is that? Because false teaching confuses people. It confuses believers. It also confuses unbelievers. It confuses people who think that they're believers. They think that their works are good. I'm not a bad person. I like Jesus. I like the church. I must be good. 
My encouragement to us would, would, be, discern, would be to be discerning. Don't believe that every movement in Christendom is from God. Fight for clarity of the gospel, especially in this area of trust. Who are you trusting in for eternal life, Christ or yourself? We want to be gracious as we talk with people, but we want to make sure, are we, are we clear on the gospel? Because false teaching, it confuses the church. It confuses believers and unbelievers. Here's the third thing about false teaching. Number three, false teaching spreads through the church. False teaching spreads through the church. Look at what he says next. He, he quotes a proverb. We see him quote this proverb elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 5. But he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Uh, what, what does he mean? He, he means it, it doesn't take a lot. The, the problem is not just with those who are outside the church, that the problem is with those who are inside the church. And in fact, I would suggest to you that there is a far greater danger to, to Christians spiritually from voices within the church than from persecution outside the church. Far greater danger to our Christian life and our gospel witness than outside the church is the danger inside the church. He says, a little leaven leavens a whole lump. And what, what is the leaven that he's describing here? Is it, is it the, the doctrine that these teachers are teaching or the teachers themselves? I'm, I'm not sure. Either way, that his point is that those who are teaching the, the bad doctrine, it's, it's going to spread. It's going to, to, to permeate the church and they need to be dealt with. False teaching spreads. Second Timothy talks about talk that increases ungodliness and spreads like gangrene. Ligonier Ministries, every uh, couple of years, uh, publishes a poll. And they, they release the results of the, the poll and kind of gauges the religious convictions of Americans. And, and listen to what, uh, the, the, I think this is the most recent poll. They, they write this. Um, a majority of Americans agree that Jesus died on the cross for sin that he, and that he rose from the dead. Okay, so the majority of Mer Americans would, would affirm that statement. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. And you, and you hear that and you think, well, that's, that's pretty good. That's, a, and that's an important thing for people to believe. But then listen to what else Americans would say they believe or not believe. Almost 70%, 69% of Americans disagree that, that all sin deserves eternal condemnation. A majority of U.S. adults would say that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. Six in ten Americans would, would, say that religious, or would, would say that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not about objective truth. In fact, they found that one in three people who said they would be evangelical Christians, in other words, people who would affirm the gospel, one in three of those people even would say, look, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion, not about objective truth. Obviously, that hurts gospel outreach, right? Most people are basically good, Americans would say. God accepts the worship of all religions, most Americans would say. Jesus, in fact, they would say this. So the same people who would say Jesus Christ died on the cross for sin, rose from the dead, uh, most Americans, the same 78%, would say that Jesus was a created being. He was created by God the Father. And basically, they're affirming Arianism, a heresy condemned 1500, over 1,500 years ago. What's the point? Oh, and by the way, this is increasing. Okay, so, so the number of Americans who are, who are affirming these wrong teachings, it's, it's not decreasing, it's increasing. It's, it's spreading. What's, what's my point? The point is this. The average person that you encounter in, in your life, if, if, if you're walking around America, I'm assuming most of you are walking around America, talking to Americans, most of you who talk with Americans... The people you're, who are, you're going to encounter on average or more than on average are going to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ, that he, that he lived, that he died on the cross for sins, that he rose from the dead. And yet, at the same time, they're going to deny the penalty of sin being eternal damnation. They're going to deny the centrality of Jesus Christ in dying on the cross for our sins to save us. They're not going to be placing their trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. They're going to be trusting in, in Jesus and their works. In other words, 
most people that you encounter on a daily life are going to say some great things about Jesus and yet deny the gospel. Most people that you encounter in churches are at best going to have a murky understanding of the gospel. In other words, this isn't some future danger that might affect the church someday. This isn't some hypothetical potential danger. This, this danger is on us. And so the false gospel, false teaching hinders, it confuses, it spreads. All right, so how do we respond? How do we respond to this? False teaching, we see, must be dealt with by the church. This is, this is uncomfortable, but you and I... Because we love the Lord, because we love the gospel, because we love to see people brought into relationship with God through faith alone in Jesus Christ so they can worship him forever. Because we love that, we have to deal with false teaching. You say, well, how, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, number one, the church evaluates false teaching. Number one, the church has to evaluate false teaching. There's, there's three things that I want you to notice here in, in verse 10, the beginning of verse 10 and verses 11 and 12. The first thing, notice this. Notice that Paul has confidence in the Galatians. Now, do you remember what Paul has, <laughs> you know what Paul has said about these guys? He said, you know, I'm, I'm shocked by you. Who's bewitched you? Are you, you know, are you foolish? I mean, he's kind of had some hard things to say about these guys. But, but now, now he says, you know what? I, I have confidence, but, but it's not in you. It's in the Lord, all right? I have confidence in the Lord, okay? I, I'm confident that, that God is going to help you understand the true gospel and respond appropriately. I mean, he's going to give you the ability to come to the right decision. That's, that's the first thing I want you to notice. Now, also, notice this as we think about the church evaluating false teaching. Notice that he, he gives them a specific issue for them to think through. Okay, he says, he starts in verse 11, he says, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Now, what I think he's talking about there is, is some of the opponents of Paul, perhaps, were going into the churches and were saying, look, yeah, we're saying you need to be circumcised, but, but Paul has said that in the past, and there's some people that he's encouraged to be circumcised as well. We're, we're saying the same thing that Paul is. We're just, we're just being a little bit more upfront with you. We're being more honest. Paul should have mentioned this. He didn't mention it to you. That's, on bad, that's, that's a bad on Paul, right? And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Let's, let's, are we really saying the same thing? Or, are we, or, or am I and the proponents of the false gospel, are we saying different things? He says, look, if I still preach circumcision, if I was still going around saying that you have to be circumcised in order to be in right relationship with God, why am I still being persecuted? Right now, I, I'm encountering persecution from the Jews. And if I was saying the same things that the Judaizers are saying, my opponents are saying, the false teachers are saying, there'd be no persecution. My gospel, Paul says, is cross-centered. My gospel is the true gospel. As one person says, the cross rejects any and all human attempts to be right with God. The cross rejects any and all human attempts to be right with God. Righteousness is found only in what Jesus Christ has done for sinners. Paul says, that's my message. So you need to evaluate you need to evaluate their teaching, compare it to mine. Are we really saying the same thing? I say that it's only on the basis of Jesus Christ and his work that a person is brought into relationship with God. They say that you need to do something in order to be in a right relationship with God. Now, we may, it may sound like we're saying a lot of the same things. We say some, some of the same things about Jesus. But is this the same message? And Paul is saying it is absolutely not. Now, the, the third thing to notice here is he talks about evaluating teaching Notice how strong his statement of condemnation is in verse 12. Notice, notice how strong what he says is. Now, uh, I would not commend this to you as, as a, a technique to use when you're talking with people with, with whom you disagree. Paul's saying, look, if, if they're so, if they're so uh, excited about circumcision, I wish they'd just go the whole way and castrate themselves, okay? Um, that, that now Paul's rhetoric is, is for his time and his culture, not encouraging you to get that sarcastic and uh, graphic with, with people with whom you're disagreeing. Uh, but but let's, let's, let's say this. Um, do, you have, do you have that boldness 
and passion for the gospel message and recognition that a message is not the true gospel message. Paul isn't like, oh, you know what, we just agree to disagree. Paul says, man, you know what, this is, this is a big deal. And he makes this bold statement to describe how big of a deal it is. We need to evaluate the teaching. He said, well, okay, Daniel, how, how do I do that? What is a false teacher and, and how do I evaluate false teaching? Now, we could go much more in depth with this. We will in the future. But ultimately, a, a false teacher is a person whose doctrine or life contradicts the gospel message and, and is unwilling to respond to correction. So, so Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, he says, watch your Remember, he says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. He says, by doing that, you'll, you'll save yourself and the hearers, right? So you, you watch your life, because if your life isn't consistent with the gospel message, you're a false teacher at, at a point. And if your teaching is, is contrary, your doctrine is teaching the gospel message at its core, you're a false teacher. Now, you, can be, you can be a wrong teacher. You know, I've been a wrong teacher before. That doesn't make me a false teacher, a false teacher is a person whose doctrine and life contradict the gospel message. Now, what are some things? Let me just give you. Uh, let me just give you four things for you to check as you evaluate, as you evaluate a message. One, you're going to want you're going to want to check the message's source. What's what's the source of this message? Remember, that's why Paul spends the first two chapters saying, this message is not from me, it's from God. Jesus even says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. That's from John 7, 16. So it's not just some authoritative guy's opinion or gal's opinion. It's, it's does this message come from God? Is it is it biblical? Another th- So if a person isn't using scripture or is, is, does the, the message doesn't find its, its authority in scripture, but just kind of in some... Some th- random thoughts of the day or, or self-help motivate. That is not true teaching. Secondly, check the message's consistency. Check the message's consistency. Some messages sound good if you look at an isolated text, but then as you, as you begin to, to compare it with all the, the message of Scripture, you say, well, okay, this, this, doesn't, this isn't a consistent message. This is a, a wrong teaching. And Paul tells Timothy, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, that's, that's the one you deal with. That's false teaching. You check, is this message consistent with the teaching of Scripture? Is it consistent with the gospel? Is it consistent with the, the teaching of, of other people that, that I know are, are, are holding fast the gospel? Now, that doesn't mean that, that other teachers can't be wrong on some issues, but is this message consistent? And then a, a third thing to check, and this is something that I think is sometimes overlooked, check, check the messenger's character. Check the messenger's character. So one person puts it, the true believer pursues goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. The counterfeit Christian is marked by arrogance and slander. They're experts in greed. Their eyes are full of adultery. They, they despise authority. There's a, a general characteristic of a counterfeit believer that you can look at their lifestyle and say, okay, this, this person's, the message sounds good, but, but their message is inconsistent with the life of the gospel. Their message is not marked by humility. Their, their message is not marked by, by love for others. The, the message is not marked by a desire to see God glorified instead of themselves. Uh, they, they seem to be a person who's self-willed, who's, who's boastful, who has a, a tendency to, to pursue that which is for their own gain. And that is a person who is exhibiting characteristics of a false teacher. If you see that, in, or a false believer, you see that in, in a pastor's life or other people, you need to confront, hey, I'm seeing this and, and maybe I'm wrong in what I'm seeing. This is what I'm seeing. And, and a person who's a genuine believer is either going to say, no, here, here's where what you're saying is, is incorrect. And let me, do you agree with me that maybe you just misunderstood some things that I've said? Or the genuine believer says, you know what? Um, it's God works in their heart. You say, you know, and maybe they don't say this initially, but say, you know what? You're right. I, I my life has been characterized by, by greed in an area. I wasn't aware of this. And absolutely, God's, God's glory is of greater importance than my own. And then you check, another thing to check, you check the fruit of their teaching. What, 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 what's the fruit in the lives of the people who are following this teacher and, and, and this teaching? What, what's the result of this teaching? Is it greater godliness? Is it legalism? Is it immorality? Or is it a 
it, or is it greater godliness? Is it, is it the desire to, to walk in obedience to God by faith? Number two, so the church evaluates and the church judges false teaching. The church has responsibility to, to judge false teaching. Uh, Paul says here in verse 10, he says, I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. In other words, the church is going to concur with what God says about sin. Remember in Matthew chapter 16, Simon Peter gives that great confession of who Christ is, and Jesus says, look, Peter, you're the rock, and on this rock I'll build my, my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you, this is the church, the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, this doesn't mean that the church goes around and says, you know what, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're in. It means the church has the God-given responsibility not to, not to judge on the basis of its own st- standards. We don't, we don't judge people on the basis of what we think is right or wrong. We say, okay, what does God say about this? If God says this is false teaching, I evaluate it in light of Scripture. I concur with what God says. The church judges false teaching, and, it, and it, there are temporal and eternal judgments on false teachers. And the church says this, says, look, this is false teaching. You're engaging in false teaching. You're pursuing false teaching. Your life is not consistent with the gospel message. There's eternal consequences of that, and, and you warn those you love about that. And then the church proclaims what God has already said regarding judgment. The church as a whole affirms and upholds the gospel. And, and notice this. It says, he says, he'll bear the penalty Whoever he is, there, there's no partiality with God. Remember in chapter 1, he says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. This is not about us. It's about God and affirming what God has said. And then the last thing here, the church removes false teaching. Okay, This is the implication of, of the judgment that I think he's talking about in verse 10. There's a judgment to bear, there's an eternal judgment, and there's also a temporal judgment. And the church can engage in temporal judgments as they agree with God to try to prevent people from having to face an eternal judgment. The church removes false teaching and the church removes false teachers. It also, we're going a little bit beyond the text here, but it also removes those who are living a life that's the fruit of false teaching. Now, they say, well, why would the church do that? The church does that because it loves God, because it loves his glory, because it loves one another, wants to protect against false teaching, not allow people to think this is an appropriate understanding of the gospel, and because the church loves the person who is living in contradiction to the gospel. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5 talks about sexual immorality in the church and how the church has just allowed this, this immorality to continue. A person is, is engaged in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And the, 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 Paul says, look, I, I've, I've already pronounced judgment. You know, I, I don't need to come there. I know what God says about this thing. This is 1 Corinthians 5. And he says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that, so that... So this is purpose. It's not to you don't engage in church discipline or church restoration for the for just the sake of shaming someone or saying now you're going to pay. But it's so that his his soul will be saved, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He says your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And he talks about the. The, again, some of the purposes of church discipline, the process of removal we described in Matthew 18. We can talk about that some other time. The church evaluates, it judges, it removes. All of us need the gospel message. All of us need the gospel message. This this is the message we take to the world. The message that says, I'm a sinner. The message that says, look, on my own, I have no ability to be in right relationship with God. That there's nothing within myself that I can take to God and say, okay, God, 
I know I did that one thing, but now I've got this, so perhaps you and I can work out some, of a, some sort of arrangement here. There, there's nothing I have that I can do that. And the gospel message says I recognize that. I recognize there's, there's nothing in me, and I need only Jesus Christ. And so I place my, my complete confidence in Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone. That's the message that I desperately need. That is the message that, that we desperately need to proclaim to one another, not just when we get saved, but whenever we continue the Christian life. We continue the Christian life as sinners who are relying only on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're trusting only in him for eternal life. That's the gospel message. It's a gospel message we, we have to protect. And so when a person comes into the church and begins to say something different, we have to address that, not because we don't love that person, but because we do, and because we love God and the gospel message, and because we want to protect one another. And so when we hear a message that says, look, if you want to really be right with God, you've got to become Jewish. When we hear a gospel message that says, look, if you're, God doesn't really care about holiness. When we hear a gospel message that says, look, if you really want to be right with God, you've got to do this with your children in terms of schooling, or you got to do this with your children, sort of what sort of clothes they wear. You got to, if you want to earn God's grace, you have to do this. Instead, the message just says, "Look, by God's grace, you walk in obedience." Now, as a church, by God's grace, we must be unified in our commitment to protect that message. Love for the Lord, love for the lost, love for His people compels us to address false teaching and teachers. Well, because we are united in that gospel message, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper together. And so uh, as a church, and so I'd invite the men to begin to make their way forward uh, to pass out the elements of the Lord's Supper. Again, you don't have to be a member of Bethany Community Church uh, to partake of the Lord's Supper as a believer. You just need to be a believer, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. We do encourage uh, people to be committed to a local church as they partake of the Lord's Supper. We're working toward that. And this morning as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are recognizing that we are united. There is a there is unity to us that, that is greater than our cultural unity. There's a greater unity that exists among the people who are in this room who are believers, a greater unity than we could ever have in terms of just our, our nationality or our hobbies or our age or our marital status or where we are in terms of our career. There is a unity that exists because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so I would encourage you as you partake of the Lord's Supper, this is what Paul encourages us to do, to, to examine in your heart, am I unified with other believers? Is there something in my heart that is preventing unity with, with my brother or sister for whom Christ also died? And before you partake of the Lord's Supper, if you would commit in your heart, Lord, help me do the things that would pursue unity with my brother or sister or brothers or sisters in, in Christ. Commit to that. Rejoice in that as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be in relationship with one another, in relationship with you. We pray that by your grace, you would help us to, to live in obedience, help us to walk in obedience, not in our own strength, but through the strength of your son, Jesus. Help us to be united in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.
you would prepare to first partake of the bread with me, you and I have the ability to be in relationship with one another again, not because of our works, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. And as we hold the bread, we recognize that Jesus Christ came and lived not as just some spirit being, but as flesh and blood, that he lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. And so as we partake of the bread, we're recognizing that our, our righteousness is not dependent upon ourselves, but upon the, the perfect God-man who lived the life that you and I could not live. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the, pre- took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you would prepare to take the cup with me, as we hold the cup, we recognize it's not enough that Jesus just lived the perfect life for us. He had to die on the cross. This covenant had, the new covenant had to be inaugurated in his blood. It's his shed blood that is the basis for the forgiveness of our sins. And so as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we recognize again the centrality of the person of Jesus Christ in washing away our sins. Same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so, by God's grace, we proclaim the death of our Lord Jesus Christ until he returns. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time of worship this morning. We thank you for your son, Jesus who allows us to worship you. We pray that you'd help us to run well this week. Help us not to be hindered by wrong understandings of your desire for us or wrong understandings of how we walk in obedience, but help us to run in light of the pure gospel of your son, Jesus. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and the ability we have to approach you in prayer this morning through faith in him. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.